Hey, this is JJ French from Twisted Sister, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. Anyway, we're taking a bow, and um, my roadie runs up and says, Paul's coming up. I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, I hope the band remembers the song, you know, the arrangement, and Paul, of course, never rehearsed it with us. So not only did he, not only was he endorsing my music and, and endorsing me by coming on stage, I mean, he really had faith that we were going to do something that wasn't going to embarrass him. And that was the first show of that English tour, which, you know, put me in a beatle mood, uh, you know, uh, more than usual. Today's guest is Stephen Van Zandt, an American singer, songwriter, musician, producer, actor, and activist. He is best known as a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He is also known for his roles on television drama series, such as Silvio Dante on The Sopranos and Frank Tagliano on Lilyhammer. Since the 1980s, Van Zandt has led his own solo band called Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. In 2014, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the E Street Band. Van Zant discovered his love for music at an early age when he learned how to play the guitar after watching the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. He later described this moment as the Big Bang of Rock and Roll. In his early years, Van Zant performed with Springsteen in Steel Mill and the Bruce Springsteen Band. He co-founded Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, in addition to the Miami Horns, who took their name from Vine Sam's nickname, Miami Steve. In 1974, he landed his vaunted role in the E Street Band during the production of Springsteen's Born to Run LP. Since 2002, Van Zant has hosted Little Steven's Underground Garage, a weekly syndicated radio show that celebrates garage rock and similar rock subgenres from the 1950s into the present day. The show can be heard on more than 200 U.S. radio stations in addition to international markets. His latest album, Mecca, features live performances at Liverpool's Cavern Club, including a guest stint from none other than Sir Paul McCartney. Welcome, Stephen Van Zant. Please tell us about your Beatles origin story, little Stephen. Same as 72 million others. Uh, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show. Well, I, I'd, I'd heard the record before that. Um, just one night, um, I had my transistor radio underneath the covers. I was, 
I was 12. And um, on came, uh, I want to hold your hand. And uh, I'd never heard anything like it. And uh, me and my brother, uh, my brother who's seven years younger, um, sleeping in the next bed, you know, uh, we were listening to the radio. And, uh, and when, they hit, when they hit the chorus, when they hit the high note, we, we, we both burst out laughing just spontaneously, which um, I think sums up exactly the effect of the Beatles music, you know, um, which I would define as just um, uh, pure joy, you know, at that at that stage of, of one's life, um, uh, you know, completely one hundred percent joyful, and and um, something that you know not you heard you heard something similar to that, but no, nothing quite like it. And uh, so it was immediately, um, it was immediately uh, dominated your, your mind from, from that moment on. And you just wanted to hear more and more and more. And, and then February 9th, of course, which was, uh, well, what would have been, I guess we, we would have first heard the record somewhere around, around Christmas. Um, it got, it started getting on the radio in December, you know, it's early January. And then, um, you know, by 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 uh, by February 9th when they did the TV show, uh, it, it was already number one. And uh, soon after that, everything they put out or had ever put out would be on the charts. I mean, it was incredible. So there must have been a point, correct? Not long after that, where the Beatles' origin story becomes Stephen Van Zant's origin story. You know, as I've said a thousand times, you know, February 8th, there were no bands in America. February 10th, everybody had a band in their garage, you know. And um, that's, that's, that's not a very big exaggeration. Um, everybody in, in those days watched one TV in the family room with the entire family. And this crazy, <laughs> this, this crazy host, Ed Sullivan, would have something for all of the, the different age groups you know, on his variety show and uh, something for the teenagers and, and something for the teenagers. February 9th, 1964 was uh, the Beatles. And, um, you know, no one had ever seen anything like them. Um, as I've said in the past, you know, it was like a, it was like a, a flying saucer landing in, in the park. Only you'd seen flying saucers land in the park, you know, on the, in the movies. So, so this was actually more incredible than that. <laughs> you know, they were just perfect. You know, their, their harmony was perfect. Their hair, their, their clothes, they were smart, uh, very witty. And as I said, it was a, it was a one-two punch for me because, um, you know, four months later, the Rolling Stones came in, in June. And um, that was equally, you know, equally important because the Beatles, uh, I mean, the, the, the Stones made it look easier than it was. You know, they, they um, you know, they, they, they didn't have harmony. They, they had, no, they, they wore what they felt like. Um, you know, the hair wasn't perfect except for, except for Brian Jones. And, um, you know, the, the, the Beatles, um, we caught the Beatles halfway through the career. Um, you know, they... They got together in 57. They were gone basically in 69. 
so we, 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 we discovered them pretty much halfway through the career already. So they were extraordinarily good. They were sophisticated beyond our comprehension. So um, you couldn't really imagine doing it. So as I like to say, um, the Beatles showed us a new world and the Rolling Stones invited us in four months <laughs> later. I love that. So you've had a chance, you've had the opportunity to play with Paul and, and, and meet these guys. How does a miracle like this happen? People always think we were so, you know, noble and, and, and courageous to stick to our guns, you know, when everybody in the neighborhood um, had an option, uh, they took it, you know. And only two guys were left standing in New Jersey, which is me and Bruce Springsteen. Um, and, um, you, know, to, you know, to be honest, it wasn't because we were courageous or, uh, you know, or steadfast or, or, you know, dedicated. We couldn't do anything else. <laughs> we were incapable of anything else. We were complete misfits, freaks, outcasts. <laughs> and... Uh, Society had no place for us whatsoever, you know. So thankfully, this miracle, as you say, came along called the British Invasion. And um, immediately swept us up in, into it as a, as a fantasy career option, you know. <laughs> Were you one of those guys who had a band on February 10th? Um, so, soon, soon after, I, I had, um, um, yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, uh, we, um, you know, you got together with, with guys who, 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 um, who could play things. Uh, we, we, accordions were big in those days. And, uh, uh my first band was with a guy with an accordion, Bruce Gumbert, who, um, you know, as soon as we saw the Dave Clark Five on Ed Sullivan, uh, all the accordion players traded it in for Vox uh, organ or, or Farfisa organ. You know, but uh, but accordions were, were were you know, believe it or not, they were <laughs> ubiquitous. <laughs> they were, I mean, uh, there, there was an accordion on every block uh, in those days. Uh, uh, several ethnic groups, you know had them as their as their staple uh, you know you know with polish to to romanian to to armenian to, to you know italian uh, spanish i mean you know almost every ethnic group uh, had an accordion you know and and uh, so yeah it gradually grew into a it grew it grew it into a rock band but um yeah i started off as a singer and then as soon as I could play guitar, uh, I started my own band and played guitar and sang. Yeah. What was your first guitar? Uh, Telecaster. Um, well, I, I traded. I traded. I had an Epiphone actually, um, and um, it was a hollow body Epiphone, so it kept feeding back. And I didn't understand why, and I traded it for a Telecaster. And uh, I was the Telecaster guy for several years until uh, until Bruce decided he, he wanted to try it. And then he, he, he you know, he, he asked me if, if, if he could switch to Telecaster. Because in, in those days, your guitar was your 
identity, you know. Everybody had a different guitar. Oh, so what happened when he became the Telecaster guy? Yes, he asked my permission to become the Telecaster guy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what the hell? I started playing a Stratocaster. So um, when did it start to dawn on you that in, in the in this wonderful shadow of the miracle of the Beatles that you could be moving toward a place where this was going to be your job option. Oh, well, you know, you didn't really, uh, you know, we, we, we had, we had some success with Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes, which is the band I started with Johnny. And, and we, um, we had a residency at a club called the stone pony in Asbury park and it was really quite successful. Um, we you know started off with one night a week and we we ended up with three nights a week, and um, it was just very very uh, very successful. A thousand people a night. Um, so at that point, uh, technically, you know, you were making a living uh, playing rock and roll, which uh, was already a, a miracle. Um, there was that one more stage of getting into the business which would come, you know, Bruce, Bruce got signed first and then, and, um, and then Southside got signed. Um, and then eventually, and then I got signed, uh, myself, uh, a few years later. Um, and you know, I, I think by the time, uh, I, I joined, I left Southside and, and, and joined the E Street Band. Um, we were we were kind of shaky, really, um, really until the river, you know. To be honest, uh, you know, there was we worked a little bit with more to run. We worked a little bit more with with doctors on the edge of town. Once we had this uh, very big agent, Frank Barcelona, adopted us, which was a lifesaver. But um, we didn't really, we weren't really doing very well until the river, and, and we finally had our first hit record with with Hungry Heart. And that was the point where officially you're now in the business and you're making a living, you know. So that was '81 or something, right? '80, uh, yeah. So me and Bruce started playing with in '65. So what's that? 15, 16 years. Of dues, you know. Paul McCartney used to joke about the overnight success, right? I'm telling you, yeah. The, I mean, the, the Beatles were the second longest. We we may have been the longest, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to before we made it. You know, work, working at it before we made it. But uh, but but the Beatles were probably second. I mean, they they're doing six six sets a night in in Hamburg, seven nights a week for months at a time, which is incredible. Uh, you know, and, and they and and working all the time, and and uh, so by, like I said, by the time we we discovered them, uh, they'd already been huge in, in England and and uh, had a bunch of hits already, and and so we we discovered them quite late. But they had, but they had, they they were the, probably the second longest uh, gestation from you know birth to success. Uh, but we, we were definitely the longest, I think, in history that, that will ever be, you know. When we return, Stephen Van Zandt will tell us more about making it in the business 
and what it was like to play live with Paul McCartney at the Cavern Club. We're back with everything Fab Four. Stephen, you've been talking about the difficulties of breaking into the business and then sustaining your career. In my courses uh, about the Beatles or Bruce Springsteen, we often talk about those critical junctures where one might have left the business altogether. Can you tell us about those moments in your career? I'm still having those moments, so you know it's not a, it's not exactly it's not a distant memory for me. But um, yeah, I quit playing entirely for a couple of years uh, and work construction on the roads. I figured we'd missed it. You know, we'd, we'd missed we'd missed the boat, and everything great had been done. And um, we just, you know, we were too late, you know, and I wasn't really wrong, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, you know, I didn't see, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't see a post Renaissance period, which uh, clearly there was. And, and, you know, to some, to some very, very diluted sense still is, but um, there was a, in fact, a post Renaissance that would begin in the seventies. And, and we would end up being a part of that as, the third generation of rock and roll, you know, but I, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And, 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 um, you know, um, I wasn't really looking forward to it. I, I thought, you know, we, we just, we had missed, we'd missed the Renaissance, you know, which we did. Was the moment for you to, to get back into it, uh, at least during that period, was it when, when Bruce asked you to, uh, arrange 10th Avenue freeze out? No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a bizarre road, which, you know, my whole life is, but, um, I was playing football on the weekend and, and, and broke my finger, uh, still bent. And, um, to exercise it, I joined a local band playing piano and that got me back into it a little bit. And that band ended up, the drummer's cousin was one of the Dovells, and I and then became the backup group for the Dovells on the oldie circuit, and that was really my education uh, began on that oldie circuit, meeting all of, of the pioneers and listening to them every night, and really being immersed in in um, in, in the first generation of rock. You know, that was an extremely important moment. And then coming out of that, I came back to Asbury and and started Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes. Uh, so it was like, you know, slow climb. And then I got tired of that because I was managing the band also. And um, you know, every week was a different fight with the with the with the club with the club owners and uh, whatever. And I just thought, I wanted a break for a minute. And Bruce uh, had booked seven gigs. Um, on the Born to Run tour, um, he was in big trouble at that point. He was hanging around with us at at our residency. You know, he was he was performing regularly with us with Southside Giant and, and 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 you know the Jukes because he couldn't work. You know, his first two records didn't do very much. And when you're in the business, it changes everything. It changes. Uh, you can't be as spontaneous, you know, you have to follow certain rules. And the rules were, you know, if you don't sell enough records, you don't work, uh, you know. So he was hanging out with us and, and, and he managed to get a third record done miraculously. Really, I mean, his manager had to, you know, 
uh, mortgage his house. And, and um, anyway, we had seven gigs booked. I said, he said, come on, I want to I put the guitar down. Come hang out for seven gigs, you know. So I just kind of did it like just to get out of town, you know, and I figured I'd go back to the Jukes. So how then do those uh, seven gigs turn into seven years? What was the transformation? The bottom line was one of those gigs and the uh, Roxy. And, you know, all of a sudden we kind of blew up. You know, we kind of started blowing minds when people came to see us and got on a cover of Time and Newsweek. And, you know, it was like a, you know, a big noise. And people were coming, you know, thought, thinking it was hype. You know, what's all this hype? You know, hype was a very bad word in those days. You didn't want to be, you didn't want to be hype, man, because you were dead if you were hype. You know, it killed Moby Grape. You know, Moby Grape's first album, which is one of the great albums of all time, by one of the great bands of all time. The, uh, the record company thought they were so great, they put out every song as a single. <laughs> they, put, <laughs> they put out, you know, whatever it was, six singles <laughs> at once. <laughs> and ended their career by doing that, you know. That, that's how delicate and fragile and weird things were in those days. Anyway, so all of a sudden he's on a time, he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and no one's ever heard of him, you know. So obviously it must be hype. So people came to laugh at us, and, uh, you know, and instead we blew their minds. So all of a sudden we weren't so dead, you know, we... Rumors of our death became exaggerated, and uh, I stayed for seven years. You know, I was watching the Hammersmith Odeon uh, videos recently, just getting prepped, and you guys were killing it. You know, they they must have found that there was no hype at all. Yeah, yeah, we were the real thing. I mean, I mean, by then we'd been playing ten years. You know, even by then, um, you know, we we um, you know, and we were good. You know, we we were. We had to be good, you know. When you're when you're a rock and roll dance band, which we all were, we were that. The Beatles were that. The Stones were that. The Who were that. You know, uh, the Kinks, the Day Clock Five, all of them were were rock and roll dance bands. People, you know, danced to rock and roll in those days. And if you didn't make people dance, you know, you weren't going to work. And uh, so um, it took a little extra energy, a little extra you know, performance energy to make people get out of the chair and dance. And, and um, so we had that going for us, you know, that extra little bit of energy, which all the British Invasion bands had. Oh, and that's the word too, energy. I mean, listen to the who, right? I mean, they just, it just grabs you. Yeah, that, that, that's from the bar wars, you know, that's for, that's for you know, you're, that only comes from playing the bars and playing the clubs and fighting for your life every night. You know, when it's that serious, you either get good or, or, you, or you disappear. You know, it's very, very Darwinian. You know, you know, it really is. So anybody coming out the other side of that has still managed to keep the band together. It was always a bit of a miracle itself. Uh, you know, you, you were stronger, you know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing, you know. Uh, and so we were we were extremely strong at that point. It all it all led to um, Paul, you know, um, came on stage with us at, at Hyde Park, which was thrilling. 
That was the, that was the day they pulled the plug on us. <laughs> oh, right. Because <laughs> uh, nothing important was happening, you know, just Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen, uh, you know, whatever. That stuff certainly keeps you humble. And, and, then, and then Paul invited me and Bruce to play with him at Madison Square Garden, which was thrilling. Um, but him coming on my stage was one of the most important moments of my life. I mean, it was complete closure for me. The anticipation alone must have been staggering. You know, I, I heard he was coming and... Um, I said, uh, you know, I said, well, we, we had only five minutes left in the sound check because it was our biggest show, uh, the first show of the tour. I had just arrived uh, in time for the sound check. We, I had I'd filmed uh, the Irishman the night before, and um, and and so um, we only had five minutes left in the sound check, and I, and I heard Paul might be coming, so I said, we better just prepare something just in case. So I did a little Richard, uh, a little Richard version of I saw her standing there, you know, because you know we had the horns, you know, and I knew Paul loved Little Richard as as I do, and, and in fact Paul turned me on to Little Richard. I, I never would have heard of him, you know, uh, without the Beatles. Anyway, um, so he comes and, and I and I said to him, I said, listen, you've been you've been working nonstop. You never go out. You never socialize. Just relax tonight, man. You know. You and Nancy, you know, your wonderful wife, stay, you know, sit with my wife, enjoy the show. I got a terrific band. You're going to love this band. And just enjoy it, you know, because, you know, I, I knew we didn't probably know many of my songs, um, as most of my audiences don't, you know. You know? <laughs> uh, it's a part of my, my lifelong challenge, you know, to win people over song by song. Um, which I usually, we usually do, you know, because the band is that good. Anyway, we're taking a bow, and, and um, my roadie runs up and says, Paul's coming up. I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, I hope the band remembers the song, you know, the arrangement. And Paul, of course, never rehearsed it with us. So not only did he, not only was he endorsing my music and, and endorsing me by coming on stage, I mean, he really had faith that we were going to do something that wasn't going to embarrass him, you know? And he came on with a guitar. So, um, you know, we went into, we went into, I saw her standing there and, and, uh, and that was the first show of that English tour, which, you know, put me in a beatle mood, uh, you know, uh, more than usual. Is this what led to the opportunity to take the band to the world-famous Cavern Club? I mean, you're in a beatle mood anyway when you get to Liverpool, of course. And I said, you know what? I said, you know, I, I used to read about them doing the lunchtime sets. I think it's where Brian Epstein first saw them. The, the local workers, you know, in, you know, various uh, clerks and, and, and secretaries in those days would bring their lunch to this cavern club at, you know, 12 noon or whatever it was. And the Beatles would play for them for half an hour. I mean, that was a, that was a thing, you know. And I said, you know, let's 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 do a lunchtime set. Um, we're playing Liverpool that night anyway, so you know we're there. And we called up, and they said, you know, well, we haven't done that in forty or fifty years, but but uh, you know, what the hell? <laughs> and so that's uh, what we did. You know, and I was like, well, it's going to be you know only half an hour. We got to we got to you know do it right. So I said, Let, let's divide it in between. Uh, Beatles songs with horns because we have the horns, and and then half the set will be Beatle covers that they would have done at the cavern, you know, like Larry Williams and Arthur Alexander, and you know, 
And that's what we did. You know, we we um, we divided it up into into you know those eight songs uh, from the cavern, and then we threw on Paul's. Uh, I saw her standing there, and then we also threw on. Uh, at some point in the tour, we played "Birthday" for my wife's birthday, so we threw that on to make it a ten-song album. But the eight songs uh, from the cavern are, are that set we did. And now it's been added. It, it, it's it's a separate album and DVD itself, but it's also been added to the Soul Fire package from the Soul Fire tour, um, which was uh, the first tour from 2017. We saw you uh, and the Disciples of Soul here in Asbury Park. I guess it would have been 2018 or 2019 at the Music and Arts Festival. And you guys had a giant, big sound. And and we did learn some songs that night we didn't know. So <laughs> you won us over one song at a time. Yeah, that's my thing, you know. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish it was otherwise, but, you know, but that's, uh, you know, uh, it's a strange life, you know. I, I can't explain it, but, but um, I'm sure I'm the only guy ever to tour with a 15-piece band, 35 person touring party without one single hit you know um it's one of those things you know i just uh i try not try not to let triviality get in the way (laughs) what was it like to to take that band into the cavern which is such a tight space well you know um when i first got to england i'm not sure if it was you know we, we we played um Four quick shows in Europe um, in, in when, when Born to Run came out, which would have been, what, 75, I guess, right? Uh, or 76. Um, yeah, we did two shows. You know, we, we did uh, uh, two shows in England, one in uh, Stockholm and one in Amsterdam. And I'm not sure if it was that trip or the next trip when we came for, for the river, which would have been five, six years later. But anyway, on one of those trips, I ran to Liverpool, uh, obviously. So, you know, this is one of, the, you know, my religion being rock and roll. You know, I ran to Mecca uh, and um, got to the address. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, you know, is this the right address? I, I came, I was told this is the address for the cavern, you know. And I saw a parking lot, you know. And somebody says, oh, you know. Yeah, they paved it over. <laughs> so, in their in their entrepreneurial wisdom, somebody had paved over the original cavern. <laughs> you know, what what possible importance could that be? You know, <laughs> yeah, it was like paving over the Vatican. You know, or, you know, whatever Solomon's Temple for me. You know. Uh, but luckily, they rebuilt it very close to where it was, supposedly with the same bricks, whatever. And, um, and they built it in, in two rooms instead of one. And the one room, copying the original with the arches that we've all seen in the only video I've ever seen of the Beatles doing some other guy. And, um, uh, and, and, and then there's a hallway and, and then there's another bigger room where Paul McCartney played when he played the cavern and, and, and most bands play. And they assumed that's where I wanted to play, you know, the bigger stage, you know, I was like, no, I, I got to have the arches, you know? <laughs> so we barely fit the rhythm section on the, on that stage. 
and that's a, it's a long room, you know, uh, with the arches, and there's like a partition, and there's a hallway like going to the bathrooms. So we put the horns and girls in, in the hallway. You got a lot of guys, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can see it in the DVD. And we can't see each other. Uh, there was a little hole in the partition where Eddie Mannion, our, our, our horn section leader, could see Richie, our drummer. So we could kind of end the songs relatively close to each other, you know. <laughs> but uh, we, could, we couldn't see them at all. Uh, and uh, but I, I had to have the arches, I, you know. I, I just I couldn't uh, I couldn't go to the cavern and and play the other room. It just didn't. It didn't. You know. No. It's been wonderful to watch Liverpool reclaim uh, its Beatles past. As I say, you know, now now it looks like it should. There's a Beatle museum. There's all kinds of things, historical sites, as far as I'm concerned, sacred sites of my religion. So, of course, you've been to Studio Two. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. You know, I was there for the first time. Um, you know, I was on EMI, my first solo stuff. And I happened to be there, uh, I guess, for the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. And um, they invited a few of us to, to listen to the original tapes. You know, those those big four, you know, one-inch, four-track tapes. And I never have experienced anything like it. Hearing those original tapes in that room, I absolutely felt stoned for a couple of days afterwards. I mean, I was affected physically by it. You know, I can't describe. I can't describe what it sounds like. There's no comparison to, to God forbid, CDs or any anything digital. But even the original record, you know, there's nothing quite like hearing the original tapes. And it just it just uh, gets into the, every fiber of your being. Uh, it surely does, Stephen. It's a story that never gets old. Thanks for being here with us. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.